for centuries, it's been known to most as Easter Island, but its real name is Rapa Nui. The story was that the iconic stone heads were created by the inhabitants as some type of competition between tribes and this rivalry led to the deforestation and downfall of the island. Yet in recent years, scientists have taken a new look at the evidence on the remote location. They now believe that the theory we were so certain was the truth was in fact far from correct. I sat down with Dr. Terry Hunt, one of the foremost experts on the island and the scientist behind many of these discoveries to unlock the facts behind the history of Rapa Nui. My name is Eric Erickson. I'm an author, journalist, researcher, and lifelong student of history. I'm fascinated by new knowledge that challenges society's belief system of history and what we think really happened in the past. Join me for conversations with historians, archaeologists, scientists, and people who are changing the very way we view history. Welcome to Unlocking the Past. Welcome to my guest on this episode of Unlocking the Past, Dr. Terry Hunt. You are a world-renowned expert when it comes to, and I'm going let's, to, let's clear it up right now. I grew up saying Easter Island, and the proper, the proper terminology, because it's the name of the place from the people that live there, is Rapa Nui. Am I saying it correctly? Yes, Rapa Nui. Um, okay. It's the modern traditional name of the island. Okay. And so uh, people on the island prefer Rapa Nui over Easter Island, but uh, which makes world... sense. I mean, it's their yeah. it's their island, and they're totally. <laughs> yeah, the world tends to know Easter Island, so when we get a little farther afield, I will use Easter Island. But Rapa Nui is we we try to get everybody used to Rapa Nui. It is. Yeah. I mean, that's the new way. Is we're finally looking back on history. And realizing that there's certain ways that we refer to things and there's certain ways that we look at things were shaped by the people over the last few centuries who were doing, yeah, you know, the work and who were now we kind of take a step back and be like, well, things are a little different than we thought. We've learned more. We've evolved as a society. And, you know, let's take a new look at it, which is kind of what the show's about. So it, yeah, that's I'm why I good. wanted to have you on here. Here's our chance to set the record straight. So how did you become interested in the island? I've had a career in Pacific Island archaeology that began in Hawaii as a kid. And I was very interested in history. And then I realized that a lot of history was about um, converting um, natives to Christianity. And it was written by missionaries. And I, I sort of thought, well, that's interesting, but it's not really what I want to know about. I want to know about what life was like before that. And as a teenager, I picked up a book about archaeology and had that moment and said, I'm going to be an archaeologist. Mm. And so my interest began in Hawaii and um, spread to the Pacific because Hawaii's, you know, part of that, of course. So my career has been in the Pacific Islands. My interest in Rapa Nui um, came from teaching at University of Hawaii and being fascinated with the island and also coming to uh, 
have an interest in why small places with few resources in many parts of the world do big, magnificent things. And I had been at University of Washington participating in a seminar uh, where I was a visiting professor and we were examining that topic. And I thought, well, Rapa Nui is the quintessential case of that. And so uh, in the late 1990s, I got interested in learning more um, than just the sort of summary version of Rapa Nui. And, and so went to the island in 2000 and began doing some research there. Did you start doing research before you actually visited the island? I mean, yeah, because I was teaching uh, Pacific Island archaeology at University of Hawaii, so there would always be a lecture about Easter Island. Because we covered the entire Pacific, it was superficial, and my knowledge at that time was pretty conventional, you know, what you read in published sources. And so I went to the island with that bat with a Pacific Island background. The surprises came over the next few years when I realized that a lot of what was said about Rapa Nui, a lot of what we thought we knew about Rapa Nui was, in fact, incorrect. Oh, like what? So, well, the whole thing started to sort of, you know, um, fall apart. I suppose the, you know, the dominant narrative in the 1990s, and it, it remains so for some, is the idea that Rapa Nui... Uh, was a place where people um, overpopulated the island, overexploited its research, which led to a collapse of the society, collapse of the ecology, and that this was all um, brought upon themselves, and that Rapa Nui is a story of societal ruin and ecos ecocide for ecological suicide. Mm. And, um, you know, I believe that that was probably the case. And then more and more of the evidence didn't hold up. And we had to sort of examine where does this come from and what is the evidence for this? And it, it wasn't really there. Instead, I think what what uh, I realized and with my, my colleague, Carl Lippo, we began to realize that what had happened is that a narrative had formed around what happened after Europeans arrived introduced disease there was a collapse of the population with disease but it was projected onto the past and given a different cause and that cause was sort of ecological change of the island they sort of um compressed the chronology and made the mistake of attributing uh, what happened post-european times to thinking it happened before european times but in fact it did not so what's the prevailing belief now that we've been able to take that step back and realize what was legend, what was um, implied, what was, you know, misunderstood? What do we believe happened now? Let me say that we discovered many things in the last 20 years that surprised us. One of them was that the island was colonized later than we originally thought. Um, we used to think it was colonized maybe sometime the prevailing view when we started working there was about 800 AD or Christian era and our radiocarbon results and our analysis of previous results showed that the island was not colonized until about 1200 AD or Christian era mm -hmm. and that's a shorter chronology that changes things because now there's not a period when um, there was no human change to the island, to, to the island's ecology. 
And we began to realize that, okay, people arrive around 1200 Christian era. They <clears throat> begin to uh, plant crops. They introduce rats either on purpose or uh, by accident. Um, they begin to remove trees using fire to plant crops like agriculturalists do everywhere in the world. And um, over the next few hundred years, things slowly change. The island becomes uh, less and less forested with giant, it had giant palm trees as the dominant part of the forest. Those disappear, people plant crops. The rats uh, actually aid in deforestation because they eat the seeds of native plants that then don't grow back. But the deforestation doesn't cause really any problems for the islanders. It's going to change a few things, but they're dealing with any problems that arise by adapting forms of cultivation using uh, rocks for cultivation. There's something we call lithic or rock mulch, where they pile rocks and they provide nutrients to the plants, etc. So what all of this implies is that the island was colonized and people were successful. Um, they did not suffer a collapse before Europeans arrived, even though they had altered the ecology of the island. And in, in altering the ecology, what they had done is they transformed the island from a natural environment into an agricultural environment, which happens in many parts of the world, uh, you know, most of us probably wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened in our ancestors' past. Yeah. So they they made the island actually more productive, making uh, giant statues and the monuments they stood on and all the amazing things they did um, were part of that story. But it wasn't anything to do with their having problems. It was actually more to do with their success. And so that was one of the original stories was that that I remember growing up with is oh, well, they were warring and they were trying to prove this other tribe was better because their statues were... I, all of these bizarre tales that became part of the the legend, but we took yeah, those back. And, 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 and I think the, the, the modern um, popular legend, we could call it that, is that, um, is that one of ecological suicide, that the statues were a kind of madness that led to destroying the island and over exploiting the resources. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas there was that the statues were transported using logs as rollers. And so you had to cut down hundreds of trees to move hundreds of statues uh, and ending up being thousands upon thousands. And you were destroying the environment doing that. Well, none of that is actually true. Um, you don't, you don't use rollers to, to transport statues. You don't mm -hmm. use trees um you use rope and the changes in the environment were actually toward more productivity rather than less and in 1722 on easter sunday when europeans arrived for the first time they are going to introduce old world diseases that pacific islanders and uh, native americans for that matter had no natural immunity no evolved immunity. These are new diseases from another part of the world, and they're going to suffer uh, catastrophic um, collapse with epidemics. So the epidemics that would be brought would reduce the population. And then Europeans, during the time that they're visiting the island after 1722, they're witnessing this decline, and they're attributing it to other things. And so we took their accounts 
literally and seriously and said, oh, well, gee, they shouldn't have cut down the trees because look what happened to them. Mm. And that's just not what happened. Um, They cut down the trees to grow crops and European diseases were killing them. So those are two separate things separated in time. Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now. If you ask the average person, do people live on Rapa Nui? They'd be like, no. There's tourism because people go to see the statues. How many people live on the island now? The island today has somewhere more, somewhere north of 5,000 people. Okay. And are, uh, are, are they direct that, descendants? Yes. They okay. are. Today's population, they are direct descendants of the original Polynesians on the island. The island population has declined a bit with the pandemic because a lot of uh, non-native uh, people left because mm. there was any economy. If you didn't own your own land, you couldn't do much on the island with no with no business. So a lot of people were leaving and not coming back. But the population now is is descended from the native Rapa Nui, the original settlers of the island. And where did the original settlers come from? So the original settlers of the island are are Polynesians, and um, they are from the region of what we call East Polynesia. And the linguistic, that is the evidence of the, the closeness of their language to other Polynesian languages, and also recent genetic work and also archaeology, those lines of evidence tell us that the closest connection are to Mangareva in the southeastern Pacific, it's part of French Polynesia, and to the Marquesas uh, further north, also French Polynesia, and that that migration occurred rather quickly. Uh, that's from some of our own work. Uh, the settlement of a lot of the remote islands of the eastern Pacific, including Rapa Nui, places like the Marquesas, Tahiti, the Austral Islands where Mangareva is, even Hawaii, New Zealand, uh, occurred rather quickly in the 12th and 13th century. Was it something where they were out exploring and someone came across the island and then people followed? Was it uh, a migration situation where they were a group of people were looking for a new home? Do we have any idea like how that move happened? Yeah, we have some ideas about how migration occurred and, and, and actually what enabled it. It seems that something really erased distance. Probably double-hold canoes, mm-hmm. uh, navigational skills, so that once you locate, once you, I shouldn't say not locate, but once you discover an island, you can um, relocate it by using celestial navigation. You can um, sort of analyze and recall how to get back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that meant that people could discover uninhabited islands. They had the navigational and other seafaring skills to get there and to go back. And probably what happened was that with all these skills, there wasn't kind of a push 
to go to new places like things were miserable. So, oh, you know, somebody has to get in a canoe and leave. It's more like a pull factor where, wow, there are all these amazing islands out there. And every time we go out and explore, we find islands and there are no people. Let's keep doing this. So there was great motivation. Imagine discovering Hawaii. Nobody there. And it's yours. And it's full of resources. And, you know, just, you know, speaking of paradise, I mean, there you go. Um, and so there would really be this pull factor. And we know that within 100 to maybe 200 years, uh, Polynesian navigators had located almost every island in the Pacific. And they'd colonized almost every island in the remote Pacific. So from Samoa heading east, um, north to Hawaii, all the way east to Rapa Nui, and, and then south to New Zealand. Um, all within a short period of time. Mm. And I think people have this concept that when Europeans arrived, it was as if the people who were living on the island hadn't seen anybody since they'd showed up there hundreds of years before. Were they still the different cultures interacting and, and trading? And, you know, it, they weren't isolated. They still had so, interactions with other with other peoples. Yeah, we some islands were truly isolated and some were not. And we know that in the period of colonization, when people are discovering islands rapidly, that ability, that technology that erases distance, we could think about as high mobility. So people could be really mobile and they could go all over the place. And so there's a period, it may have been a few centuries, when voyaging continued between islands after they were colonized. So in Hawaii, for example, there are a lot of oral traditions about voyages from the south, from Kahiki in Hawaiian, which is probably Tahiti, um, I say probably because it can also be a generic term for other islands to the south, but that would have brought people and new, uh, possibly new plants, etc., to the islands. And so there was interaction um, for a while. Before Europeans arrived, a lot of that interaction um, declined and ended. It tended to end between the most remote places. The places that were closer together continued so that when Europeans reached Tahiti, for example, there were still canoes going between those islands because those islands are closer together and they're, it's, it's a little easier to voyage there. And so there were social and trade relations between those islands that continued. With Rapa Nui, uh, we think all the evidence points to once people got there, it was actually truly isolated and there wasn't continuing voyaging. Okay. And so they were kind of cut off um, from the rest of Polynesia immediately or at least very quickly and then things happened there in isolation not so in hawaii or new zealand but rapa nui yes one of the reasons that i originally reached out to you is i was reading an article that fascinated me about how climate change is affecting the island mm -hmm. and it was a it was a discovery where a, a pond had dried up and they found artifacts in the pond how is that changing the island, the tourism, the culture, the discoveries. I mean, there, there must be so many different ways that it's affecting the island. Climate change is bringing concerns 
about conservation of the um, archaeology. And I say that because some of the biggest threats of climate change that uh, the island is experiencing right now are things like increased um, storminess and even increased wind, for example, can bring more salt spray and salt spray can create salt minerals in mineralization in the rock, which can break the, the statue surfaces apart in a small way, but in a continuous way. There have been uh, storm surges recently that washed right up onto the monuments. Sea level rise, of course, is happening slowly, and it will have a slow impact there because of the deep offshore contour of the island. So it won't rise quickly kind of in a lateral way, but it'll rise slowly. And the risk there is that rising sea level can affect the groundwater, and the groundwater is an important source of drinking water on the island. This is really true on uh, smaller islands like the the coral islands um, in French Polynesia, for example, called atolls, those islands have groundwater lenses that are very easily, you know, ruined essentially by saltwater inundation. A little bit of rise in sea level and the saltwater gets in there. So in, in Rapa Nui, the, the concerns are, are really with the climate effects that we're experiencing right now and how they're having an impact on the treasures that are the archaeology of the island. The the lake drying on the island, um, we think maybe it has dried before. And so there are fluctuations on the island. The fluctuations could get uh, more severe, but we think the lake bed has probably been dry in the past and that the, the statue or the moai that was found in the lake recently, a few months back, was actually evidence that the lake bed had been dry before because that statue probably wouldn't have been there if there was water in the lake. Mm. It wasn't a situation where they were like, hide this, the Europeans are coming. Throw, no, <laughs> throw it in the, in no the they had about a thousand moai, so they weren't going to hide one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, great minds. Mr. DGMH here, but wait, what the hell is DGMH? DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month. While we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness, as greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers! One thing I've always wondered is, you know, we, we hear about the statues. That's obviously the, the most prominent. What other kinds of artifacts are found? Or what are, are there other artistic creations on the on the island i mean i'm sure we find you, you find tools you find pottery that type of thing because that's culture yeah but are there other artistic artifacts or things that we don't hear about yes uh there's a you know the 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 thousand statues on the island are just the tip of the iceberg uh the architecture on the island is spectacular and people uh, built really amazing platforms that the statues stood on with mm. beautiful uh, masonry, sometimes cut and, and fit um, in spectacular ways. 
even the even even house foundations were really beautifully built with um, with quarried stone that was shaped and then made into the shape of a of a boat uh, for the shape of the houses. Uh, the rock art on the island, the petroglyphs, are spectacular, and, and there are literally thousands of them. The uh, the wood carving on the island that uh, survives from ancient times and found in museums around the world is, is really spectacular. And the artists on the island today do spectacular work. So there was really a very uh, developed artisan skill and culture on the island and we think of it in terms of the statues of the Moai, but in fact, it was across um, all of society and, you know, beautiful works that uh, attest to their their talent. The petroglyphs, you, you, you catch my attention with that because they tell stories, they tell history, they tell myths, legends, religion. So what do the petroglyphs tell us about the culture on the island? Yeah, the petroglyphs are, uh, as I say, there are many of them, and they're diverse. We see images that relate perhaps the the spirits or the demigods in nature and the mythical beings such as half bird, half man, um, or maybe the the fish or the birds that are ancestor figures. And in Polynesian mythology, the idea is that spirits move between humans and animals in a rather open way, and that a shark may represent, for example, an ancestor, or that a spirit can take the form of a shark or of something else. Uh, and so the petroglyphs will often reflect perhaps important deities in nature, and many of them would have had religious significance. The, the petroglyphs are also very similar to the the script in the Rongorongo system, the, the sort of a, probably an early or incipient form of writing on wooden tablets. And the glyphs on there would have probably recounted stories and genealogies for people whose oral tradition was, in fact, very important. Mm. So that was a way of kind of keeping notes on it for a society that didn't have writing per se or written language. Uh, would have been sort of a device to remember elements of the story or of your genealogy. Let's use as a comparison the American Indians. You have common threads that then as they break off, the individual tribes and the individual cultures begin to develop their own interpretations of stories. They add, they're in the Southwest, it's going to become more desert-oriented, or if it's, in, you know, depending on what the how the culture develops. So you were saying that in Polynesian culture, there are certain ways of looking at myth, there are certain ways of looking at gods, moral, like different things. Can you see on the island their own development of their own stories, their own interpretation? Does it evolve in a unique way that's different than some of the other cultures? As Because you said at a certain point, there was less interaction. So they become encapsulated. They become isolated. Right. Can you see right. that? Yes. Uh, you, you see the foundations in Polynesian culture and all the commonalities with the rest of Polynesia. And then you see aspects that have diverged that are unique that you don't see elsewhere. So 
the Birdman, for example, which is important on Rapa Nui, you do see in other parts of Polynesia, but it, it never reaches the sort of elaboration that it does on Rapa Nui. So there's an old concept or a widespread concept that in some places disappears. In some places, it's minor. In Rapa Nui, it's, it's huge. Um, and it was very important. So things things diverge, things get, uh, things evolve to be really important. Some things disappear. Uh, and of course, Rapa Nui was a different environment than other Pacific islands. So they, they lost many of the, um, the tropical plants, for example. I mean, their culture was different by virtue of being a different kind of island with a different climate and, mm. and a different sustenance possible. I've always been fascinated by that, whether it's, you know, this type of situation, or I'm a, Anybody who listens to my shows knows I'm a big sci-fi geek, but you know, so you, you, that's a trope in sci-fi is like the, the lost civilization that's been, you know, whether it's comic books of the savage land or, you know, these situations where they're locked away from the rest of society and they develop their own myths. And then there's also the evolution side of it. Well, like on an Island, or we talk about Australia where certain uh, species have evolved in a certain way because they were locked off from all the other animals. You know, so we see that. So I've just always been fascinated by that. It's this little microcosm, you know, and I just, that's, it's so interesting to hear about. So when you, when you go to the island, how do you get there? What's the route that you take to arrive? The the only, the only uh, way to get to the island at, at the present is um, from Santiago in Chile. And there are now, um, it's only happened recently after after the pandemic. There are now daily flights uh, from Santiago on 787s. And so you have a lot of passengers. And it's about a five-hour flight from Santiago to the island. They used to fly between uh, Rapa Nui and Tahiti, uh, the same airline from South America called LATAM. Uh, but they they have not renewed those flights yet. Uh, they ended with the pandemic and they have not they've not picked them up again and the the rumor is we're not sure when it's going to happen so they may or may not Uh, but right now it's through Santiago and so from uh, North America depending on the airline you'll leave from one of the one of the cities like Dallas or Miami Los Angeles and fly to Santiago and then go from there yeah tourism must be such just a double-edged sword I mean they need it in order but at the same time it's I literally, for a while, it was dangerous, like bringing people to the island. I mean, how do they culturally, there's all, like, I remember going to tiki bars at a certain point and your drink was served in a, in a glass shaped like one of the the statues, you know, it's, and now probably not so much, but I'm sure there are places where they still do it. How do they see the appropriation of their culture or of their history? Is it, a good thing because it's spreading knowledge of what's going on or do they see it as appropriation and belittling of their culture? Rapa Nui people are very proud and I think that if they saw a, a cocktail in a in a Easter Island statue mug they would just find it kind of amusing because they're secure enough in knowing what they have and who they are that they're not as sensitive about that, um, I would say what they're probably more concerned about is can their language and culture continue in the face of tourism? I mean, they have much more immediate concerns that mm-hmm. 
um, than maybe how their culture is represented in a in a tiki bar. I don't think that's the first thing on their mind, which is probably a good thing because they got bigger they got bigger fish to fry, uh, and so they're concerned about you know will our kids and grandkids know this culture? Will they know the island? Will they know the language? Yeah. How can we um, maintain that? How can we protect the the treasure that the island is today in terms of its archaeology and in terms of its environment? Those are those are big concerns. And people are concerned, I think, also with the double-edged sword of tourism, where it is the economy. And I think that uh, Rapa Nui people recognize that they have endured tourism and at the same time kind of now they're standing up to it a little bit more. The tourists are not free to have any impact they want to have. Uh, and Rapa Nui people have taken more control of the island and access to the island and impacts that are occurring. This is a good thing because otherwise everything will really will be gone. Mm. And so they're, uh, they're, they're dealing with that. The only thing I would say about um, not so much about appropriation in the, in the one sense, but the one thing a lot of Rapa Nui people are concerned about are the number of Rapa Nui artifacts, including statues that are not on the island. Um, that are in South America or in Europe or in the United States. And there is an interest in bringing those things home, um, even though there has to be continuing discussion about bringing what that means, uh, because is there a place to actually protect them if they come home? Do they have the right kind of curatorial um, facilities on the island? And at present, they do not. So if you brought something from the British Museum, for example, made of wood or fiber you might want to be sure that you had the right place to store it because otherwise it'll arrive on the island and it'll deteriorate much faster than it would at the british museum so those are ongoing discussions it, it parallels an interview i did a few years ago with some members of the blackfeet nation they said something very similar because we were talking about this is when the washington commanders were still you know all the argument about what the name of the team is going to be in different sports teams and the conversation turned to we've got bigger problems right now than to care about what you call a football team i they this was uh during coming out of the pandemic at the time there were some crimes that were going on that weren't being solved by the feds like there were all these other issues and just getting basic services to the reservation internet water yeah. medical yeah. services so sometimes, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because let's deal with basic survival issues or basic problems or cultural issues and not worry about, like I said, a tiki cup. I think a tiki cup would actually be a sign of everything else was more or less resolved. Yeah. If, you, if, you're, if your attention turned to that, they really have other more immediate concerns. Really the sustainability of the island, questions of water, questions of landfill questions of septic systems versus water uh, drinking water etc all of these are big concerns on a small island with a lot of tourists i mean you get you get uh you know you're getting a hundred thousand plus tourists before the pandemic each year they have an impact and you know between five and ten thousand residents it was it was about ten thousand before the pandemic and it's somewhere above five now. I don't. There hasn't been a census lately, so we could be five or six thousand people now on the island.
Hey everyone, I have been in the podcasting space for years and have hosted and created numerous shows and long ago I got my start in radio when I was just in my teens and I have loved every minute of it, but I've definitely learned lessons along the way. That's why I sat down and created the book, How to Start a Podcast in Less Than a Day. I wanted to show people that creating their own podcast wasn't as difficult as they might think. The book is a straightforward, step-by-step guide to take your podcast from concept to launch, as well as promotions and monetization. I love what I do, and you can have the same experience. No long-winded explanations, no selling of other courses or products, no expensive options, just down-to-earth, easy, step-by-step information on how to get your podcast launched without stress, often using the resources you already have, and without laying down a lot of money and in less than a day. How to start a podcast in less than a day. Available now from Amazon. Check the links in the show notes and go out and start your own show. Do you teach a class at the University of Arizona on the island or is it part of a larger curriculum that you teach? How do you pass on this knowledge? I teach a, um, a community-based class, which is kind of for um, students who are lifelong learners. And I just finished teaching uh, a community class about Rapa Nui. Our regular curriculum for, you know, university students, uh, it, it, Rapa Nui is probably a little too specialized for that. But mm-hmm. I do teach about Rapa Nui in some of my courses where I'm teaching about archaeology in general. And then I use Rapa Nui as examples of things. So... It's part of my teaching, but I don't normally teach a whole class on it, not for um, university students, but for community members. Do you find that there are pre-existing ideas that you have to change? There are always pre-existing ideas. Uh, and, you know, I can kind of I can kind of take the temperature of popular notions, and I can also, taking that temperature also tells me that they're changing. Um, and that they're changing in the direction that we are making them change. So that makes me happy. Um, along those lines, by the way, it's interesting. When you go to the island today, um, if you go to the island and you want to talk to the tour guides on the island, the Rapa Nui tour guides, about um, how their ancestors destroyed the island and committed ecological suicide and all that, the guides will now correct you. They will say, well, that's not true. That didn't happen. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, they would have just smiled and nodded and said, yeah, things were bad. Really? So the narrative has changed. Um, and they, you know, part of it was that they're willing to stand up to the, to the stereotypical notions. The other is that the, the evidence has changed and they know it. And so they don't believe the old story anymore. And they were agreeing with the tourists partly out of uh, be, you know, politeness and partly out of maybe they weren't sure. It's a little bit that the customer is always right. I mean, it's a little bit of that, is yes. the business. Yeah. yeah, there's a little bit of that. And, they, and they're very, it's a very polite culture. So especially to visitors. And so mm-hmm. uh, they would just agree. They don't anymore. It's very interesting. The same goes for how the, how the statues were transported. Uh, now they will just say, no, they, they were not rolled on logs. They walked. And so they will, you know, they, they just say, we were always right. Our, our ancestors said that, and now it's been proven. The, the rolling on logs, I find interesting because I know when you deal with the 
historians in Egypt, there are very differing ideas of how they moved the stones. Some of them are they rolled them on logs. Others are like they didn't. They put them on sleds. And there are others a bit far out there who have other ideas that we were not going to talk about. But there, <laughs> there's all sorts of ideas. So was it partially just the thought of the time where they went, oh, well, this is as historians and scholars, we think this is how any society has moved something heavy. Yeah, it's interesting because I think uh, what we say about other cultures often reflects what we're thinking at the time or our own ignorance or our ignorance about what others could have done. And so I think for a while there was kind of an unspoken assumption that well we we don't know how they did it so how could they have done that you know it's a little bit of this a little bit of ethnocentrism you know like well we're more advanced ideas and so you impose that bias and then you get it wrong and so what immediately came to people's minds was that well in egypt maybe they used logs or maybe at stonehenge they used uh wooden logs or something to move uh, large stone. So maybe that's what happened on Rapa Nui. And they start to uh, talk about that and even do so-called experiments and show that, oh, yeah, you can move things this way. But because you can move something doesn't mean that's the way it was moved. There's lots of ways to do something. The problem was that the early archaeologists talking about this had never really closely looked at the evidence on the ground in Rapa Nui. They'd never closely looked at the roads that were used to transport the statues. They'd never looked at the statues themselves and the form the statues have that was designed for transport by vertical position walking using ropes. There was no suitable wood on the island for rollers anyway, and the evidence on the ground it has there's no indication whatsoever that there was any rolling it doesn't it wouldn't it might work sort of kind of maybe but the evidence just doesn't go there it's not there is no evidence of it do you think that that in part has to do with the way that academia archaeology has the structure of the system is so, sort of set up in a way where nobody wants to go against the grain until they really have the proof that is irrefutable and even then sometimes there are those i mean that we we've all heard the stories of the smithsonian kind of going nope this is the way it is we don't want any other we don't even want you to look into it you know there those stories have been out there do you think it is partially that that no that people didn't want to go against the norm or is it that the evidence what like you're saying the evidence wasn't there yet they didn't get in and do the grunt work they didn't do the groundwork or they couldn't they didn't, they didn't they didn't get in and do the do the hard work uh they didn't make the the detailed observations and so it was easier to stick with what you thought you knew and i think what happens for academics is that your you start to take your idea personally and then your idea becomes part of your identity and you mm. don't want anyone to challenge that. So I think you get stuck in ideas. And, you know, when you say when something is really proven, I think what happens is that the evidence becomes overwhelming and whether you give up your old idea or not depends on how stubborn you are, mm. or how sensitive you are about attaching an idea to your identity. So some people will never change their mind. 
some people who are not so married to it will say, oh, well, that makes perfect sense, of course. And there's the evidence. I understand. Uh, and, you know, and I, I try to convince students that that's a really valuable thing to be able to do is to question your own assumptions and to really be happy when you find out you were wrong about something, because that's powerful. Finding out you're wrong is actually better than finding out you're right, because, you know, you, you learn something from it. It's exciting. You discover it's, something it's new, right? Absolutely. It's exciting. So open your mind and find out what you don't know and find out what may be different than what you assume. And that, you know, that's been true for learning how the statues are transported. However, the Rapa Nui, the natives on the island, have always known. They just hadn't seen it for a few hundred years. And so when we actually did our work with making a perfect facsimile, perfect copy of a, of a real Moai, not one that we designed, but one that we copied perfectly, put ropes on it and we could walk it uh, in a vertical position, the immediate reaction was, yeah, of course, uh, from, from the islanders, of course. And now we've seen it again. We, we knew it was something like this, but we weren't sure exactly, but that's it, you know? And so for them, perhaps it was kind of obvious. And for us, I often tell Rapa Nui people, I say, well, I'm going to talk about how we did this because you already know the answer. And they smile and say, yes. And there has to be a part of it too. They look at what you're doing and think or say, what you're doing is important. We get the science of it. But right now we're worried about water. We're worried about how, like, Figuring out how these things are moved from point A to point B, while yes, we understand it's your, what you do, we just want to make sure we have fresh water. We need to make sure that we don't get COVID. We need to make sure that all of this, that's that's not really high on our priority list right now. But thanks for figuring it out. <laughs> well, uh, it, that that's a good point, and it's a perfect segue into telling you what we're working on now, and that is that we are working very closely with the island community on. Uh, preservation protection of the archaeology. And so as archaeologists, we can document in detail the treasures on the island and how uh, they're being affected by climate and tourism and livestock and everything. Mm -hmm. And that's important to them. And our, our current research is also focused on water and how water was procured in ancient times and whether it was a stable resource or not, or whether it fluctuated with droughts, et cetera. But part of our team is um, a hydrologist and she's looking at the entire water system for the island. And there are implications from our studying the past water studying the current water system to understand its past, there is now information for the present and the future. And so I'm proud to say that we are really addressing immediate concerns on the island as well. Many of them involve archaeology, but then many of them involve, you know, sustainability and water and tourism, etc. So um, it's archaeology is not always um, a really important part of talking about the future, but it probably should be, um, and if we if we do our jobs right, it, it will be more often. That's a great place to end it. This has been so much fun. Thank you for doing this. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your interest. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Doctor. Bye bye. <laughs>